Well, good afternoon, everybody. My name is Ben, and this is Justin, and you are listening to The Pastor Study. Uh, we know that it has been a few weeks. You name it has happened in between. Yes. And we are also knee-deep in Vacation Bible School this week, and it is, it is, it's been a blast, but it's been chaos. It it's is. Straight I, mean, I love VBS. It's so much fun, <laughs> but it is just, it is a crazy week. But, you know, we've been a month away from doing this. We planned on two yep. weeks, and... So we wanted to go ahead and continue talking about these gospel of the kingdom issues, talking about the coming kingdom of God, talking about the second coming of Christ. And today we kind of get into if there's anything controversial in this section. And I really don't think it's controversial. I think that um, it's just differings of opinion. And I think that that's, I think... Dr. Bird does a great job of this. And don't forget, we are looking at Dr. Michael F. Bird's evangelical theology. And we're talking about the millennium and tribulation today. And he makes a good point of saying that this is a secondary doctrine. Oh, I, I, I love that he starts out with like by making it very clear that this is, not only is this one debated there's multiple viewpoints of it but it's it's so much of a secondary issue and i'd say i mean personally i think it's even tertiary i don't it, even it know that it's be. on that secondary level yeah. to me i think i think the only reason it would ever be you know bumming over to that second is kind of what he says at the end about how this your your view of the end times your view of the millennium and tribulation plays into a little bit of how you disciple people. It does. No, for sure. But again, it doesn't it shouldn't play into how you are spreading the gospel and, and such like that. Exactly. So. And so, you know, let's kind of just start with um, you know, how we get in and, and begin to think about these things. Um I think it's good to just you know, we've already said that it's a secondary thing, but I like the way that he um, quotes another theologian, Luis Burkhoff says, the doctrine of the millennium has never yet been embodied in a single confession and therefore cannot be regarded as dogma of the church. Yep. So what we're looking at is these are important things. These are things that we want to know about. We want to know what we believe about, but in the end, it's not the kind of thing that goes down to this is what sets a Christian apart from a non-Christian. This is just right. what's going to set the opinions of Christians, you know, separate from one another. So the first thing we've got to ask ourselves is, you know, we're going to look at the tribulation in a little while, but first look at the millennium. What is the millennium? Well, I, he starts out right off the bat saying the word millennium means 1,000 years. Right. Simply, simply stated. And when we look at it, we will we will see that not all theologians, not even all believers that are in the same camp on the millennium agree on whether it's a literal 1,000 years or it is just a yep. time period, some kind of epoch. And so I think we, we want to look at the millennium as being a time period mm -hmm. where we see ultimately the reign of Christ on earth. Right. So this is separate from what we would look at and think of as the final reign of Christ when the kingdom is 100% inaugurated and we have the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. This is a period of time different from that, separate from that. And that's where we're going to get into as we start looking at the different time periods, how all of that comes in. So... We have to ask ourselves, you know, are we talking about a literal thousand years or are we talking about just a period of time? What does this period of time look like? What does it signify? 
And so as we think about that, we're going to look at the three main millennial views. And those are post-millennial, mm-hmm. amillennial, and pre-millennial. And the easiest way to look at that, and this is one of those things where some of the visuals that are in the book, or if I was teaching this in a class, I might draw it on a whiteboard, do help with this. But it's not that hard to think about. It. It real, all of those words have to do with when Jesus is coming back. So what you look at with premillennial is Jesus comes back before the millennium. Mm-hmm. What you look at with postmillennial is Jesus comes back after the millennium. And what you look at with amillennial is this idea that almost that there isn't really a millennium, though we're going to get into that, that that's not really the best way to understand that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, it's got a very different viewpoint on the millennium than postmillennial and premillennial do. Right. So we're going to start with post-millennial. And I would say that that is probably the um, least realized idea of this, at least within evangelical circles. And um, Dr. Bird's going to kind of tear it down (laughs) a little bit. Yeah, well, and and I think one of the hard things with any of these is that we're playing with maybe, what, a handful of verses that, oh, that even play into these. Uh, but with this one, it's it's like one verse that that, right. that people will use, and it's a lot harder to kind of uh, reconcile it with some of the other uh, right. views. So essentially with po- the post-millennial viewpoint, it's this idea that we are building towards, maybe slowly towards, but we are building towards... The millennium, and we are trying to usher in essentially a Christendom, usher in mm-hmm. a Christian world where, yes, it may not be perfect, but the Christian worldview is kind of running the world, and mm-hmm. things are being under a Christian purview of the entire world kind of being run in that way, and that we bring out this perfected version of humanity or at least almost perfected version of humanity and that is the rule for an extended period of time whether we say a literal thousand years or Or, just some period of time and then Jesus comes back after that and I'll just read what he says because I think he, he, he describes it fairly well to describe this more fully the advance of the gospel and the triumph of the church will gradually increase so that a large proportion of the world's population becomes Christians society will become more Christian as biblical values are progressively ingrained into civic laws the millennium refers to a golden age of Christian evangelization and social progress not necessarily a full thousand years but an era typified by glorious Christendom that is at once religious political and social and so life continues on, everything is going well, but it is a Christian world. And then Jesus comes back. Right. And so as you were reading this, as you were thinking through this, what did you think about just the the idea in general, even before we kind of see that it maybe doesn't make the most biblical sense? Well, and and it was actually, I started to think of the things that I'm like, you know, this just, this doesn't add up, at least not... It, at least not looking around at our everyday life that we live in right now. Right. We clearly don't live in a world that seems to be getting more Christian. Right. If anything, it's becoming less Christian. Um, and 
And I like how, I mean, he does eventually mention that. He's like, all you got to do is go on the internet to find out that we are not becoming more Christian. Right. Um, but I also love that he brought in this idea of, like, the sower and the seeds. And how is it, you know, the Bible doesn't really teach this idea that everyone is going to, you know, everything's going to magically get better. And, you know, it, right. he says that the seed, some seeds are just not going to bear fruit. Some are just not going to grow into anything worthwhile. And that's just the way it's going to be. Right. And I think that, you know, th this is a very optimistic mm -hmm. viewpoint. And he makes that point in the book. And, you know, he brings up the, the passages that they would use, specifically the Great Commission, mm -hmm. um, saying, you know, that you know Christ has been given all authority. And we know that and we understand that he is going to reign. And then they talk about, you know, the parables of growth and all of these things right. where we see the kingdom growing and the vine coming out and stretching out and stretching out. But the, he makes this argument that it just really doesn't come down when you begin to look at Revelation, when you begin to look at the world, when you begin to see that this viewpoint, as we get into the idea of the tribulation mm -hmm. in the later part of this discussion, really kind of negates that whole idea. And mm -hmm. so there's just some real problems with that post-millennial view when it comes to both kind of looking at the reality of the world and looking at scripture because ultimately what he says is you go into some of the main scriptures in revelation specifically revelation 20 which we're going to talk about a good bit as we go through this mm -hmm. is that it kind of takes everything down to types it breaks down an understanding of both what was happening then when john is writing it and his viewpoint on the future and it just doesn't ultimately work both theologically and biblically. Right. And so, you know, you don't want to 100% set that aside because there are definitely people who believe that. We wouldn't be talking about it if we, we didn't. They are very optimistic They're people. They're very, very, very optimistic, optimistic people. people. But we do kind of get that that's probably not the best way to go in it. Mm -hmm. We can kind of we can kind of set that one over to the side and say, we're not going to really spend a whole lot of time on the post-millennial viewpoint. Right. And then you get into the amillennial viewpoint. And as we've talked about this, that, that idea there that's in the wording, amillennial, it just literally means no millennium. Right. But he makes a point here of saying that that's really not the best way to understand it. He says, but this is a misnomer because amillennialism does not actually deny that a millennium exists. More accurately, it regards the millennium as a present reality with a future consummation. Greg Beale labels amillennialism more precisely as an inaugurated millennialism. In this view, the church age is the millennium because it is where and when Christ reigns over his people as their Lord. Unlike the post-millennial position, the millennium here is not a golden age that transpires as the church age gets progressively better. Instead, the church age is identical to the millennium itself, and there is a period of persecution at the end of the church age, usually called the tribulation, thereafter Christ returns to bring in the eternal state of new heaven and new earth. And what did you think about this viewpoint? I liked this viewpoint, and he kind of says, you know, very similarly that, you know, he, he wishes he could be in a, yeah. you know, a millennium. Um, but I like this because it, it really touches in, like, what he said in the previous chapters about that uh, now but not yet kind of thing. Exactly. Where, and, and I like how neatly it fits in that pocket. Right. Um, because I think this idea that Christ is reigning right now as king, but also that there's going to be, like, there's even more kingship and more 
creation to come, so to speak. And, you know, and I would consider my personal viewpoint on this to be more of a non-millennial viewpoint. Right. As I was reading through this, I'll tell you, you know, you know, even thinking through this, because I've done a lot of reading on this, done a lot of thinking through this. His argument for, as we get to it in a moment, for a, you know, historical, more traditional premillennial view is really, really strong. And, you know, there is a sense where I kind of agree with him that, like, theologically, this is kind of where I am. But when I begin to look at the biblical mm-hmm. aspect of it, you start to want to kind of combine the two together in some way and understand kind of how they fit together. Because I'm very much a, as... The kingdom is alive. It's here. It's now. Christ is reigning, but it's not yet fulfilled. And that is very much the amillennial viewpoint. I mean, I speak about that most Sundays in some way or another where we're we're kind of in that. And, you know, but there are some places just with any time. This is why, you know, I try not to 100% hold on to these secondary, tertiary things, kind of hold them with an open hand. Mm -hmm. Because there are some things in here where, you know, I go, yeah, there's some things that are a little wishy-washy here where I don't necessarily agree wholeheartedly with one side or the other on this. And, But I think it is really good to look at it. And, you know, what it says here as you go into the eschatological views and you look at passages in Daniel and you look at passages in Revelation, this kind of puts them together in a unity. Everything is kind of working together to get to that point where Jesus comes back and then we see the ushering in of the new heavens and the new earth and everything that comes along with that. I think that's the strongest point on millennialism. And I think that's what he says in there. And I think when you begin to look, part of what has drawn me to this viewpoint is I don't see in Scripture a Jesus comes back, he leaves, and then he comes back again, which when we get into the post-trib and the pre-trib is going to be you know, where some of the things kind of where it gets yeah. a little sticky in that. But again, I think there's a good argument there. But I like, you know, where he says here, I would seriously like to be a millennial. It's so much simpler. As you already said, it recognizes the already and the not yet of biblical eschatology and avoids the eccentricities of postmillennialism and dispensational premillennialism. And I think that's the point here. The eccentricities of dispensational premillennialism, which is different than what we're going to get into with uh, historical or classical mm. premillennialism, which is what he's going to argue for. And so you get into this point of what we're saying is, what's interesting is, I don't think, and I know that he's not going to disagree, and most of us would not disagree that Christ is reigning now. Right. He sits at the right hand of the Father. He is advocating for us. He is the king in the here and now. And it's really a lot of it comes down to whether you're going to kind of fall on that amillennial side or the historical premillennial side is just how the timing of all of these events come out. Well, and, and, and I can't help but continue to think back to, you know, a few chapters ago where we were learning about God being outside of time. And uh, this is a slight diverge. Have you been watching the new Loki TV I have show. been watching the new Logie TV I show. Never, don't tell me anything if you've watched today's I episode. I haven't seen today's episode, okay. but I, um, without spoiling anything, I have never had a TV show that has had me wrestle so much with my eschatology worldview. Yeah. Like, because, I mean, that you know, they really do tackle this idea of like what happens at the end of time. And, and I think, uh, you know, kind of silliness aside, um, 
you all of this is is very it, it's very sticky it's very wishy-washy like there's no it's it's hard to find some sort of solid ground to land and on and i here. think on some level that's the point of it all because you know jesus says he doesn't know the time and the date so why should we and i think there's been a lot of especially as you go back into like the 70s up mm. until now a lot of this you know, trying to understand that, trying to put some concrete on this. There's not concrete on it in Scripture. Right. So on a, some level, we have to, you know, as he says in this, give it a little bit of liberality, give people a little bit of grace on where we may disagree with one another on this because the Bible is not black and white on how all of this plays out. Right. And so uh, this is very interesting stuff. It's good to think about. It's good to question. But ultimately, as we're thinking about this, we go back to where we were a few chapters ago, and we think the main point of all this is Jesus is coming back, and he will judge the living and the dead. And how that happens and the order it happens in and all of this that we're looking at today mm -hmm. is not as important as just the fact that he is coming back. Mm -hmm. And so we do want to think about this because he does make a point. It does make difference in the way that we, especially when we get into the pre-trib, post-trib, it's going to get into a difference in how we disciple people. But we want to think through this, but not spend so much time on it as it seems that some people have, where they make this the main focus of their Christianity, because it is in no way right. the main focus on what we believe. It's an interesting part of it. We want to think through it. But we want to hold it into a, you know, true, you know, we want to hold it with an open hand and realize that this is one of those places where the scripture's not 100% solid on how it all comes to place. It just is right. solid on the fact that it does. Mm -hmm. And so we're looking at this amillennial viewpoint and we're thinking through it. And, you know, he says, you know, Probably his most difficult point with amillennialism is the two resurrections that are mentioned in Revelation 20. And he says it really is kind of hard to for him to put all this together. And he says that, you know, part of, you know, some people's viewpoint is, you know, how can there be both resurrection bodies and non-resurrection bodies living at the same time? And is that really going to be a hassle? That's part of the amillennial. So yeah, there really can't be two resurrections. There's only one because it can't mm -hmm. really work. He's going to argue as we look in the premillennial, well, Jesus had a resurrection body here while no one else did. So why can some not have it and some have it? You know, and so there's all of these things that are really, you know, arguing really minute kind of things. Well, and I think that's where you get, you start to get into that difficult, like, what is time when you when you come to this right. this end part here because you know will when christ comes back will there still be time in the sense of the 24 hours that we experience every day exactly. or, or are we going to be more in line of what god is and outside of time and seeing and, and living in that eternity yeah these are questions that the bible doesn't well, that's, answer yeah. that are mysteries that we're going to have to look at that feed into how we understand yeah, exactly. all of this so we've looked at post-millennial, which is the millennium happens, everything gets better and better and better, and then we get into this great golden age, the millennium happens, Jesus comes back, inaugurates fully the kingdom. We've looked at amillennialism, which is the millennium is happening now during the church age. This is as Christ reigns 
through and over his people, those who are a part of the church, those that have followed him, that are following him. He is ruling over them. This is a millennium. He is going to come back and inaugurate fully the kingdom. And then we get into premillennial. And he says, you know, there are two, you know, kind of distinct versions of premillennialism. You've got dispensational premillennialism, which he says is typified by a sharp Israel and church contrast and the advocacy of a pre-tribulation rapture. And then you've got historical or classical premillennialism that holds to a continuity between Israel and the church and believes in the post-tribulation return of Christ. So what you end up having is... You have the church age, which is what we are in now. Then you have the tribulation. Mm. Then Jesus comes back. Then you have the millennium. Then the kingdom is inaugurated fully, and we go into the eternal state of the new heavens and the new earth and I, the new Jerusalem. I really feel like each of these you have you know, you have the, the post millennial and they are you know, they're your optimists. You have your amillennials, those they're your realists. Yeah. And then you have your pulling millennials who are, they're so pessimistic. They're like, things are going to get so much worse before right. they get better. Um. And I think that, you know, the, really there's not a whole lot of difference between the amillennial viewpoint and the, the, the historical right. premillennial viewpoint other than just that amillennial viewpoint says it's happening We're here right now. now. Because yeah. either way, you're getting that tribulation at the very end right. of that, and then Jesus comes back. And so... You know, you're looking and going, you know, how does all of this work? And so essentially what you're asking here, the difference between amillennialism and historical premillennialism is amillennialism, tribulation happens, millennium is going on right now, tribulation happens, Jesus comes back. Other here is church age is going on now, tribulation happens, Jesus comes back, millennium comes in. Right. So it really is, it's a, it's a timing issue and a how we understand what the millennium is more than anything else. And so with premillennialism, the second coming of Christ is going to usher in the reign of Christ here on earth mm -hmm. for a set amount of time, whether it's literally a thousand years or some other epoch, and then we're going to see the full inauguration of the kingdom after that. And, you know, there is just, there's this sense of that there during that reigning of Christ, there is going to be the opportunity for people to come in and believe during that time mm -hmm. that would allow them to enter into that eternal state. And all of this that, that comes into this understanding. And we ask ourselves, you know, you have to look and go, does Jesus talk about this? Does Jesus talk about a, a coming time where he will reign before the kingdom is fully inaugurated? And he makes an argument for it. And what did you think about his argument for it? Really just kind of bringing it in from the Lord's Prayer. Uh, well, I, th I thought, yeah, bringing in the Lord's Prayer. Because I've never thought of the Lord's Prayer as like a... I've never I've never used the Lord's Prayer as a way of forming my eschatological views. Right. Um, but it, it is interesting about how the, the Lord's Prayer literally says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Like this idea that there's gonna there's something coming that is much different than what we're where right. we are now. And I think it's interesting here because I've used this same passage, same thought in an amillennial viewpoint of your kingdom come, your will be done on earth now, not 
some point in the future, you know, now. And so I think it's interesting the way that he's using the same thing that I and I've seen others use right. well, and that, in and that, that different kind of passage. And I feel like you can do... It works either it way. It works either way. It does. Without... It, you, you almost you almost want to say, sure, why well, can't both? I mean, obviously, one has to be more right than the other. But, right. but the fact that they both work so perfectly, you're like, you know, it really does make you feel like maybe there's some middle ground between Maybe there's two. something that works in here. And I think if... You know, his best argument biblically is from Paul in 1 Corinthians, where he reads for he he brings out 1 Corinthians 15, 23 through 27, which I'll go ahead and read. But it but each in turn, Christ the first fruits, talking about resurrection, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, when he comes again, those who belong to him, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to the Father and he's destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. So we see this kind of picture of this reign where he is putting everything under his feet. He's destroying mm -hmm. Satan. He's destroying death. He's destroying all evil in the world. And then we see this recreation of the new heavens and the new earth and all that comes along with that so you see the resurrection you see the resurrection of believers you see the rain you see the end and saying you know there's these undefined intervals that are going through in each of this and you know he, he does make the argument that there are some say that the only real interval there that we don't see a particular time frame in is between the resurrection and the second coming but I can see his argument here as well. I think it's it's pretty good. And he makes a point that it corresponds really well with Revelation 20. Mm -hmm. As John shows what he is seeing in this vision that he has of Christ. And this vision that he has of the end times. And what he is writing to um, give comfort to those that are being persecuted in his own time. And... Again, we see this, you know, he's kind of arguing for this millennial interruption, the sequence of millennial, premillennial judgment, millennial final judgment, the new heavens and earth. You know, we got to take that seriously in Revelation 20. We see the reference to millennium and it stands with other Jewish apocalyptic visions that we see in earthly reign by a messianic figure, which we can look at really in, we don't see it in our particular scriptures mm. but we do see it in um some apocryphal books yep. um first enoch fourth ezra second baruch and so you see this that they would have been taking into consideration and they are you know he does speak of the flashbacks and the disruption of the sequence that we see in there but again he's going to argue that there's no real problem with resurrection bodies and non-resurrection bodies mixing together because we see that happen with Jesus when he walks among the disciples. Right. We see the martyrs coming in. We see the millennium coming in to show this strong point of there is going to be a time when all of this persecution, when all of this evil that has come into the world, we're going to see a time when the world is set right during mm -hmm. this millennial reign. And he said that's a stronger viewpoint um, there with that. And then he goes in to say, you know, what does, what do we see from the early church fathers? 
And he's going to bring up a word that I think is kind of interesting. He doesn't define um, chiliasts and chiliasm, um, which he should, because <laughs> I had to look it up because it was a word that I had not seen used it's before. It's not one that's in used often. And it's essentially the same as millennialist. So they're saying these are people who believed in the millennium. And we see that in early church fathers, Tertullian, er Arrhenius, Justin Martyr, others, and said so that you know there were some orthodox versions, there were some non-orthodox versions, but then we get into Augustine and Origen and Eusebius, and we see amillennialism reigns the day really for a very long time mm -hmm. in the church. I mean, and it reigned to the point of we see these early confessions and we see these early. Um, theologies coming out that says you know we're, we're going to reject millennialism altogether we also reject the jewish dream of millennium or golden age on earth before the last judgment and so we see this switch from the earliest of the church fathers seem to be arguing for the millennium to mm -hmm. we see arguing for an amillennial viewpoint and that goes on for a long long time and, you know, he says, look, you know, this isn't the only way to read this. And there are strong biblical scholars, strong theologians that are going to read it in a different way. I actually really liked the way, um, was it, was it Greg or was it Gordon here? Um, uh, the, uh, it was Greg Beale. He writes that life and rule are the primary themes of, of Revelation 24 through 6. This idea that the millennium is uh, to demonstrate the victory of suffering Christians. Yeah, and if if you know if we're going kind of by that definition of that's what the millennium is, it's harder to say that we're living in like the millennium now because if this is as good as like it gets for like. Well, I think what he's getting at there, because Beale's a, a millennialist, mm. so you're going to get that he's saying that that millennium is just a picture of that, but we're not going to see that until, until, it's, until it's finally Until it's actually finalized. Right. And you see the victory of, of suffering Christians in that. And, you know, again, we see Lauren Struckenbrook in here. The impression is left that John, rather than being concerned primarily with the order of events to be, was attempting to draw attention to the ultimate destinies of the righteous and the wicked, that is, to show in sharpest relief that God will vindicate the faithful ones and annihilate those who are in the allies of Satan. And so it's, you know, how much are we looking at it and seeing it as an apocalypse is, you know, is what John is writing, is it more showing us what is happening in the future, more of what mm -hmm. is happening in his own time or in the very near future to him, and all of these things. And what's interesting here is that he talks about and says millennialism fell out of favor when the Roman Empire converted to Christianity. Mm -hmm. Because if you're living in a place and in a time where... Christianity is embraced, yeah. you don't really need as much that idea of the millennium when Christ is going to reign in this perfect rule as much mm -hmm. as you did when you were being persecuted. Right. Which is an interesting thought that he brings up. I think it's it's a really strong um, picture there. Well, and I think that, that would be why, you know, this idea of living in the millennium now doesn't, doesn't seem to quite click with me as much. Right. 
because it's, it, things aren't super great. Not, I mean, maybe in America things are much better than obviously over in you know um, in the East with Asia and the Absolutely. Africa and where these people are being you know persecuted and martyred and such like that. Um, but you know here it's a whole different ballgame. And I think it would be interesting to look and see you know to talk to people that are in places where you're seeing. Mm-hmm real persecution going right. on and see you know how do you, where where does your eschatology fall how does that color the way that we view things mm-hmm. what does it what does it look like in that and so we're looking at these viewpoints and then he goes and said well if we're going to look at the millennium we've also got to consider the tribulation which i love the way that he kind of defines it here the rage of satan against the church Mm -hmm. so we see this time when there is going to be some kind of tribulation he says the tribulation is characterized chiefly by imperial opposition war persecution apostasy apostasy and supernatural portents. so we see all of this coming in and he speaks and says the new testament sees the advance of the kingdom and the coexistence of the tribulation together um, tribulation is something that all believers can experience. We see that in Matthew and John and Acts, Romans and First Thessalonians and Revelation. We see persecution throughout church history. We just talked about we see it going on even now. Yes. And so we know that that is a real thing. And he brings up the Lord's Prayer again and says one way to look at the idea of bring us not into temptation is not even just that personal don't bring us into temptation, but... Well, he, he Leave, breaks it down and bring says us that, away from the time of trial, yeah, which he, could talk about the tribulation. Which, and I again, I never, never seen somebody pull the Lord's prayer apart like that. Right. But, you know, in that sense, it's not really talking about you know being led to do something wrong. It's more being led into trying times. Right. And I think it's probably a both and. It probably. You know, I think as we think about what we're praying in that prayer, it's it's one of those things that that fits into both, and so. Really, so we looked at kind of three looks at the millennium, and then there are really two understandings of the tribulation. You've got pre-tribulation and post-tribulation. And again, it all comes down to when is Jesus coming back? Is he coming back before the tribulation or after the tribulation? Pre-tribulation, post-tribulation. And so we get into the pre-tribulation position and I would say that that is a lot of people are going to be pre-trib in the United States in um, just kind of popular Christianity is going to be more of a pre-trib. Would, would you agree with that? I, I think so. And I think I would fall more under that, you know, under that umbrella. But I think my reasoning is, is a little dumber than, you know. Sure. The, it, I, I th- my reason is... If if we don't, you know, if Jesus doesn't come back at the beginning of the tribulation, how will we know that the tribulation started? has come up? Well, there, right, yeah, like that's that's, that's that's my whole thing is like, look, if Jesus, doesn't, how are we gonna know? Well, and, I th- like, and that's part of my amillennial right, like, viewpoint of these two things happening simultaneously, yeah. is that you know we see some of these things going on. It speaks to that point of you know everybody's always looking and going. We're getting closer and closer and closer, but we've been getting closer and closer and closer since the day he left, and right. it's been happening. You know, we had to understand. You know, Jesus could come back at any time. We don't know when that is well, going to be, and. You know, and, and we'll see the argument here of, you know, that pre-tribulation. But that's an interesting thought. How are we going to know that we've gone through the tribulation if Jesus hasn't already 
come back. Well, and I think too, like, you know, how you were just saying, like, people bring up all the time, like, oh, like, this happened, and so obviously this is a sign that we're moving towards you know, tribulation, or, you know, things are getting bad, or so whatever, so right. on and so forth. But, like, people were saying those same things, like, World War Two and things are like you you look at World War Two and the things that happened during World War Two, like those are some of the like the worst things humanity has ever oh, done. Oh absolutely. And then here we are now, and sure there's still terrible things happening, but like Or the said, beginning of the chapter when the old lady in Australia thought that Ross Perot was the Antichrist. Right, yeah, and like there there's always been someone along the way yep. where they've been like, This person's the Antichrist or this is you know, this earthquake that just happened, like this is obviously leading into because that's what people think of when they think of tribulation. They think of natural disasters and right. sicknesses and stuff like that. And so, you know, you look at this, and so the main f- focal point of that pre-tribulation view is the rapture. Right. Where Jesus is going to come back, and he's going to rapture believers. He's going to take them away. They are not going to go through the tribulation. Mm-hmm. There's going to be a time during the tribulation where those people could come, that those that are lost could come to know Christ. All Jewish people in this, or all of Israel, will um, come under the millennial reign through the tribulation, Mm -hmm. and we see all of this. And so, um, you know, and that's really the first argument for that pre-trib view, is that the church is saved from God's wrath, you know, and specifically bringing up 1 Thessalonians 1.10, Jesus rescues from the coming wrath, and God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive through our Lord Jesus Christ in 1 Thessalonians 5.9. And really, when you think about it, most of our understanding of a pre-tribulation view, most of our understanding of the rapture comes from um, those letters to the Thessalonians. Right. And so, you know, he goes and says, you know, he's going to take Christ out of the world. The elect will be uh, moved. But then, you know, there is this sense that the elect that are going to undergo the tribulation, as mentioned in Mark 13 and Matthew 24, refers to Jews and not Christians, according to a pre-trib view. And... So we see the church is taken from the earth. Um, the Jewish people are going to suffer under the reign of the Antichrist. He's going to attack Jews. He's going to attack others who convert to Christ at the time. And at the end of the tribulation, all of Israel is converted to faith in Christ. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you also see another appeal to the church being absent from tribulation in Revelation 3.10, since you've kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come over the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. So again, believers exempted from the undergoing of worldwide affliction by the rapture from the Lord. And so you get this sense, and I think this is true. He says it in a um, pre-trib view, but I think this is true no matter where you are, that Jesus' coming is imminent. We don't know when it is going to happen. It could happen today. It could happen tomorrow. It could happen a thousand years from now. We don't know. But I, and he goes takes that particularly particularly to a premillennial view. But I don't think that that's necessarily true. Um, I understand why he says it separate from the post the the post tribulation view because I guess mm-hmm. what you kind of said we would have been in the tribulation we would have known that it's happening and then Jesus comes back so you know but it's just kind of an interesting 
Because so what do you, so what did you think about his arguments for um the pre-trib view before we go into the post the his arguments against it? Um, I think the arguments for it were relatively strong, and I and I think for me I liked them better because it, it it gives a more optimistic view for Christians that you're not gonna have to deal with the tribulation, right? Uh, so obviously it's a it's a more favorable view because it's it's a heck of a lot easier, right? Um. But again, you know, he gets into kind of some some potentially, you yeah. know, uh, difficult criticism. So yeah, so I mean, the first thing he does, and we we've, we've talked about this in previous chapters. He goes into the Olivet Discourse as Jesus is talking about prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem in AD seventy, and whether or not that's talking more specifically about that or more specifically about yep. the end times. And he's already made the argument and continues it here that it is going to be what happened at that time when um, Jerusalem is going to be sacked and the temple is going to be torn down. Mm-hmm. And again, you know, and so he's making that there and saying, so that pulls out what he says is if you're going to make that argument that it is about the fall of Jerusalem, it m- pulls out a lot of pre-trib and dispensationalist right. arguments there. Um, a lot of the scripture that they would use would be within that. And then he says um, that, you know, even though we can look and see that God's wrath is revealed now in the present time and that it can be identified with particular events, particular temporal punishments within time, um, when we really dig into those New Testament passages, God's wrath which believers are delivered always refers to God's judgment against sin at the final judgment not Mm. the wrath of tribulation and I think that's the stronger argument that he makes there I think you can make that argument even without pulling out the eschatological viewpoint of the Olivet Discourse um, that you know we are reserved from wrath Mm. because we will stand at judgment with everyone else but we will be able to be covered in the glory of Christ, covered in his righteousness, and we will not have that wrath of God that comes down on those who do not believe. And we won't be in that same, judged in that same way. And, you know, and then he argues again, you know, another passage that is used by a lot who would argue for that pre-trib viewpoint is Revelation 3.10. And so it's, you know, the going down to what is going to happen, the persecution affecting the Philadelphian church, and says, look, this is specifically to For that them. church. Yeah. Jesus is writing that letter and speaking that to that church, and that as we look and we see that the, the churches are supposed to preserve under duress, and they don't es- provide this escape from trial, it is just going to be good, and we see that we that that trial for the Philadelphians is going to be a for just amount of time, just like what we see with Smyrna, and you know, and I think this has always been my most difficult issue with it. What he brings up, you know, is his final fourth argument against. He says the pre-trib position eccentrically breaks up the second coming into a secret coming from the church before the tribulation and a later visible coming with the church after the tribulation. That this has no warrant in scripture other than being an inference from the dispensational scheme. 
And to me, that's always been the hard part on it. Is I, I it's don't essentially see... there. There is no proof that there's two. Right. The happen. scripture speaks of him coming. It doesn't speak of him coming and leaving and coming again. And that's always been mm. my kind of breaking point on um, this viewpoint. Is you know, and especially as you look into First Thessalonians four, which is usually you know we're caught up in the air and the part where he brings it. That idiom that's used there is also used in a lot of different writing at the time to speak of the king is here and we're going to go out and meeting him in the courtyard. We're caught up in the air with him. We're caught up in the world, Mm -hmm. you know, in the out in the open with him instead of this idea of we're all going to float up into the air where where Jesus is. And so, you know, it's an interesting thought, interesting viewpoints there. And again, I don't think that it is a non-biblical viewpoint. I don't think that it is heretical. I don't think that it is unorthodox. I just, you know, I think there's, this is one of those places where we give each other grace and go, you know, I can look at it this way and I can see how somebody else understands it in this other way as well. Mm -hmm. And so then he gets into the post-trib viewpoint, which was, as we have said, tribulation happens, Jesus comes back, the millennium is inaugurated at that point, and then at the end we have the judgment and the eternal state. And the post-trib view, I'll just read what he writes. Post-trib view is the church will go through a period of trial before the second coming, which precedes the millennial reign of Christ on earth. There is a resurrection concurrent with Jesus' return and another resurrection of the rest of humanity at the end of the millennium. During the tribulation, the unbelieving world experiences God's wrath in the form of natural and supernatural disasters, while believers experience the wrath of Satan, the Antichrist, and the wicked against God's people. Unlike the dispensational scheme, there is no absolute bifurcation between Israel and the church, nor are the rapture and the parousal regarded as separate events. On this scheme, the return of the Lord is impending rather than imminent, and it can be diagrammed as we have just kind of spoken out. So, you know, instead of it being imminent, it's impending. We know that he is coming. And I don't know that that in and of itself is really a... I think that's almost like taking it too far and wanting to separate the two things. Well, what, something that is kind of kind of poking at me now, I'm kind of thinking of, is, yep. you know, we, we've got this idea of the millennium being a thousand years or a period of time. Um you know, could we potentially say the same thing about the tribulation? Right. In that it's seven years or it's, you know, and, and I it's think it's a period of time. And I think, exactly. you know, it, again, it depends on where you fall kind of theologically, whether you're going to take everything strictly literally or, right. Or if the numbers are just numbers and they don't really mean anything, you know, it, and, and that's the thing is like, is there, is there a chance that there's a, there's a potential chance that we're currently living within a tribulation time frame and that when Jesus comes back, boom, that's the end. And right. then the millennium and that's starts. The, and that's the amillennial viewpoint yeah. is that the millennium is, you know, it's kind of ongoing at the same time and then there's going to be a period of worse tribulation there at the very end and then Jesus right. is going to come back. And, you know, and I think, you know, and he makes a point in here of, you know, Jesus in the Olivet Discourse, in Mark, and in Matthew, talking about the church is going to experience, the elect is, are going to experience days of distress as it is coming back um, for Christ to come back. Paul talks to the Colossians in one twenty four. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I will fill up in my flesh what is lacking in regard to Christ's affliction for the sake of the body, which is the church. And so he's talking about even his sufferings there are kind of this end-time affliction and we see the idea of the suffering of the kingdom and the patient endurance that are ours in jesus and revelation 
And again, just kind of over and over, um, 2 Thessalonians, as we get in there again, 2, 1 through 12, makes it clear that Christ's paralysis, his second coming, will occur after the rebellion takes place and after the man of lawlessness is revealed. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. And so there is this picture of that he is going to come after all of this is happening. And he argues for a clear um, post-trip perspective in Revelation. I'm talking about the seals and the trumpets and the mm-hmm. bowls and everything that is coming in that, the views of the throne room. And, you know, as he goes and he's speaking of the elders there in Revelation 7, he says, he's one of the elders comes to him and asks him the identity of those in right robes that are, gar- that are gathered around the throne. And John replies, I answered, sir, you know. And he said, there are, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And he says, these people are not just Jews, but Christians, because earlier they are described as coming from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which is the same designation of the church used in Revelation 5.9. And so this implies that the pre-tribulation church will be around for the real tribulation and will even experience martyrdom. And so there, you know, I think he makes a good argument for his view there of the post-trib view. And then he makes, and this has always been another one of my thoughts on it, that kind of his um, last argument here says, fourth, the pre-trib view will, is eminently preferable to the, the post-trib view is eminently preferable to the pre-trib view because the latter did not appear on the scene of church history until J.N. Darby, Darby in the 1830s, perhaps inspired by a spiritually enthusiastic teenage girl from Glasgow. And we see that, you know, we have been talking about these things for thousands of years and this viewpoint doesn't come up until the 1830s. And we really see it popularized by Schofield and Mm -hmm. his study Bible coming out um, in the early 20th century or late 1800s into the early 20th century um, when that's being passed around. And that becomes kind of that study Bible becomes sort of the evangelical Go to touch point and go to where these viewpoints are really solidly bought in to um, many people's understanding. And not to say that a 200 year old um, viewpoint can't be the right one. Right. And I, and I think, I think tossing it out just because it's younger doesn't mean right. that that's, that's a good way of looking at and it. And I don't think you did. I think that's why he throws this in last. He makes right. the biblical argument for it. And he says, you also got to consider that people have been studying this scripture for thousands of years and nobody came up with this idea until mm-hmm. this particular point. You know, nobody um, was talking about this until then. And, you know, and as somebody who looks, wants to look and latch on to historical Christianity and the understanding that has been passed down to us mm-hmm. from the apostles until now, you know, that does give you a little bit of a pushback. But then again, I mean, I don't, you can't just say just because we just begun, have just recently begun to understand that, that that could not be the right, right because you, you wouldn't do that with anything else right. necessarily. So. And so it, it is an argument. It is there. And I think it's, I mean, there is some weight to it, but not to mm-hmm. the point um, that, you know, that's the, the sole argument for this. And then he gets in and finally says, you know, again, just like we looked at with the millennial views, these are things that we want to give people grace on. This is not something that is going to break fellowship. This isn't something that we're going to say, 
you know, so-and-so is not a believer because they don't believe exactly the way I do on these Mm -hmm. certain things. Um, But he says, particularly with this pre-trib and post-trib differences, it matters on how we are going to disciple people. And he says, you know, if if we're post-trib, then we are going to disciple people to endure trials and tribulations and hardships and difficulties. Right. And if we're pre-tribbed, we're going to be spending more time teaching to pray that God would um, spare us from that and not you know, necessarily um, worry too much about that uh, ordeal and not worry too much about persecutions and not worry too much about those things. We're not going to focus on that as we think about how we disciple people. And uh, begin, and he says, you know, John in Revelation is going to call for patient endurance of the people of God who will keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. And, you know, and I think, again, you know, this is one of those things where maybe we're splitting hairs a little bit because even if, you know, we believe that God is going to pull the church out of that final tribulation, that doesn't negate the fact that we see that there is real persecution now and that there is real hardship in trying to follow Christ to the best of our ability. And we still need to disciple people to, to work through that. So and again, I think that there is a sense where he has a really strong viewpoint here and he's arguing for it in a really strong way. And he's not dismissive of the other viewpoints, but at the same time, there's this sense of really wanting to argue, um, what he believes in the end, he says, from all of the discussion, I conclude that biblical eschatology is best described as historic premillennialism with a polite hat tip to amillennialism as a very good alternative. (laughs) And, you know, and I think he's done a really good job of arguing this. And I think it's really interesting to discuss. I've enjoyed talking about it with you, Ben. And, you know, it would be one of those things that I would, I enjoy talking about with a lot of different folks. Um, But in the end, this is not, the most important thing that we're going to talk about. It's not the most important thing we're going to talk about in this chapter. I mean, or in this section, we've already looked at, you know, the understanding that Christ is going to come again. Next week, we're going to look at the final judgment, which in the end, no matter whether you are premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial, pre-trib, post-trib, the final judgment is going to happen. And all of these things that we're looking at, this is all about, the timing and what it looks like and how it comes to be. And though we want to have an understanding of that in the end, it doesn't matter as much as understanding that Christ is going to come back and there is going to be a final judgment. And that's what we're going to be looking at next week. I've enjoyed this. I I, I enjoy talking about these things. Difficult things are fun things to talk about. (laughs) And um, in the end, um, we're going to, we're going to have brothers and sisters that are going to disagree with us on these things, but that's why they're secondary things. That's why they're tertiary things. Uh, but next week we get into one of those black and white things. <laughs> There's going to be a final judgment. Easier to talk about. What it, maybe but, not but, as much fun will, to talk what about. what will it look like? But, and that's that's where there might be some. That's where there may be some, some, some different kinds of things. So I'm going to close some prayer since you opened us up. And we'll, sure. we will go from there. Father God, I thank you. I thank you for giving us this opportunity again to talk about you, to get to know you better, to understand this world better, to understand what is to come. Lord, I pray um, right now for all of us that are listening to this, that that we would give each other grace on these issues when it comes to how we understand exactly how you are going to bring about the end times. Or we know that you will, 
We know that Jesus is coming back. We know that he is going to judge the living and the dead, as we will look at next week. We know that he is going to gather the church around himself. We don't understand exactly how that is going to look like, even though we may have different views on that. We, um, we know that we hold those with an open hand, understanding that we will not know exactly how it comes to pass until it does come to pass. We thank you, we praise, and we glorify your name. Amen.